Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Josiah Hesse on Runner's High. First, I wanted to remind you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. While there, you can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the biographies and memoirs, health and fitness, humor, philosophy, or sports category for episode number 156 with Dean Carnassus on a runner's high. Hi, this is Dean Carnassus, ultramarathoner and author, and my new book is called A Runner's High, and you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Josiah Hesse is an investigative journalist who covers cannabis in relation to athletics, politics, economics, and culture. He's also the author of the excellent new book, Runner's High, How a Movement of Cannabis-Fueled Athletes is Changing the Science of Sports. Josiah, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Real good. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. What was your goal with this book, Runner's High? Well, I suppose there were a variety of things uh, motivating me to write this book. Um, Like most journalism, you're kind of fueled by your own curiosity. And I uh, had never really had much involvement in sports, uh, either as a journalist or as a fan or certainly as an athlete. Uh, But I had quite a big physical and lifestyle transformation when I started running uh, uh, long distances around the age of 30. And that was mostly due to discovering how well uh, the activity uh, blended with cannabis, uh, specifically cannabis edibles. And then when I learned that this wasn't just me, uh, that this was actually prevalent throughout the sports world, uh, my curiosity uh, was definitely tickled because I always thought of the sports world as so conservative, family-friendly, very anti-drug, very... uh, almost right wing, you could, or at least I had the misconception of, uh, like a lot of people have misconception about people who use cannabis. I did about, uh, people who watch sports or play sports or even just exercise. Uh, and for me, it became this sort of playful hedonistic activity that was, uh, the high point of my day. It, it wasn't really any kind of discipline or ambition of mine. It was just a, a treat at the end of the day. So all of these different avenues uh, that this topic took me down with uh, sports and law and science and history and culture, uh, there was just so much there for me to dig into. Uh, it, it, it just became a, a top priority for me. And, and the fact that it was so underreported, there, there just weren't any other journalists uh, covering this topic. So it, it was a really exciting frontier to explore. Who was the first athlete that you wrote about specific to their cannabis use? And what did you learn while researching that piece? Uh, well, that'd be Avery Collins. He's an ultramarathon runner, very accomplished ultramarathon runner uh, who does very well at these big uh, races, in, in both in the States and around Europe. Uh, these races that are like two, 250 miles, you know, across several mountain peaks, uh, you know, it's a really grueling, uh, uh, sport to get into, uh, cause it just, it goes on for days and days, but he was, uh, as, as far as my reporting, uh, goes and, and he, he believes this as well. He was the first professional athlete to be sponsored by a cannabis company. Uh, and then I, he's not the first to admit that he uses cannabis, but he's uh, certainly been one of the most brazen about it. 
And uh, this has given him some opportunities for sponsorship with the burgeoning cannabis industry, but he's also missed out on a lot of sponsorships uh, because of his association with cannabis. Uh, you know, we live in somewhat of a, a bubble in Colorado and, you know, in other legalized states and forget that uh, in other parts of America and definitely parts of the globe, uh, it's, it's still very much Nancy Reagan's America and people <laughs> have these uh, uh, knee-jerk reactions to someone saying they use cannabis, especially someone who uh, society seems to believe uh, are, are people that are role models for children. Uh, and that's a whole other issue that we can get into in a minute. But, uh, you know, for Avery, it, it, it's it's helped his career in some ways, but I think it may have hurt it even more uh, being so open about his cannabis use because he's gotten flack from other players who accuse him of using uh, uh, performance enhancing drug as, as uh, it's uh, listed at, by the World Anti-Doping Agency. Uh, and it, it is banned uh, even in the sort of DIY world of ultra marathon running. Uh, and they're just now starting to do drug tests for the top finishers. But uh, Avery goes out of his way to say like, hey, I'll be drug tested uh, at every starting line whenever you want. Uh, you know, he, is he uh, abstains from using about two weeks before a race. Um, but mm. but the, the cruel irony of that is that He's surrounded by other runners who are using cannabis uh, in the races. They're bringing these pen vaporizers with them or edibles. And it's, it's very controversial and could threaten someone's career. It's not quite as much in the spotlight as, you know, the NFL or the Olympics. Uh, but it's, it's still um, something to keep a secret, you know. Uh, and so it's unfortunate that Avery, by being so brave in uh admitting what you know that he does what all the other runners are doing he's the one that you know has to uh, take so much flack for it when whether it's you or avery or anybody else who runs long distances over an extended period of time a big reason why you do that is for the runner's high physiologically speaking what is the runner's high well it's something that uh has been with us for hundreds of thousands of years. It was something that was uh, gifted to us by evolution uh, to motivate us to uh, hunt down gazelles. Uh, uh, this is something that was documented um, very well in the book Born to Run that we have. This, uh, we have these uh, evolutionary adapted traits that allow us to run long distances uh, to you know, stalk antelope. And this was uh, key to our survival. And uh, I talked to a lot of the researchers that were profiled in that book, Born to Run, and uh, looked at the, uh, the work that they did after uh, those studies, which showed that not only do we have the physiology for running long distances, we have uh, mechanisms of pleasure uh, and reduction of pain uh, associated with these um, activities. And so, you know, just like we have this reward system that incentivizes us to have sex, to eat, uh, specifically salt, fat, and sugar, uh, or to sleep or with learning, you know, whether that's uh, Shakespeare or scrolling social media, we're still getting a dopamine uh, hit uh, from learning any new information. And we have the same uh, mechanism for exercise. Uh, uh, the researchers that I spoke with put it at somewhere around 30 minutes of cardio at around 70% of your maximum heart rate. 
Uh, and there's a lot to dig into when it comes to finding your max heart rate. Uh, uh, you, people can Google that. I'm not going to uh, get into all the math there. Hmm. Um, but that at, at that point, there's a reduction in pain and a lift in mood. And any runner, uh, distance runner, will tell you they've experienced this. Uh, if, if not a, a, each time they run, at least they've experienced it a handful of times. And this is something... Um, what's going on in the brain is the release of an endogenous cannabinoid. So just like there are cannabinoids in cannabis, uh, like THC or CBD, we have natural cannabinoids that are released uh, in our brain and into our bodies uh, that have a variety of, of different uh, functions. Uh, runner's high is just one of them. Uh, the endocannabinoid system regulates all sorts of bodily functions. But this one specifically uh, is a, a endocannabinoid called anandamide comes from the Sanskrit word for bliss. And this is what's released in the brain uh, after that 30 minute uh, threshold of 70% heart rate. A lot of people thought it was endorphins for a long time. It's looking like that isn't the case that it is uh, anandamide. Um, but anandamide works on the brain very, very similar to the way THC does. It's, it's binding to our cannabinoid receptors, uh, just like THC does. And it has this cascade uh, domino effect on our reward system uh, leading to the release of more dopamine. Um, so anandamide not only gives us a feeling of a cannabis high, it's also stimulated by a, a cannabis high. So a way that people could experience the uh, joy, the euphoria of exercise um, if they're having trouble uh, reaching that, which I would assume a good deal of the American public does have trouble reaching that. I mean, I think uh, less than 15% of Americans get sufficient exercise, so they must not be enjoying it all that much. Uh, cannabis can be a key to unlocking that ancient evolutionary system of, of, of reward, of, of bliss and, and reduction in pain through exercise, uh, which flies in the face of what a lot of people assume about. Uh, cannabis or cannabis users. Just how extensive is our cannabinoid system, Josiah? Well, it's uh, it exists all over the body and throughout the brain, uh, and it it has a role to play in nearly every function of our bodies: uh, our immune system, our appetite, our fertility, our sleeping, our mood. Uh, all of this uh, is uh, regulated in some way or impacted some way by uh, the endogenous cannabinoid system. And for the longest time, uh, this wasn't taught in uh, very many medical schools uh, around the country. It's only now become like this very exciting uh, arena of uh, neurobiology. Um, but for a long time, I think there was a sort of stigma around it and its associations with cannabis. Uh, and the, the scientific community had become so conservative throughout the years of the war on drugs, uh, at least uh, on this issue, that they just uh, didn't want uh, your career could be threatened, you know, just like with these sports stars uh, whose careers are threatened by uh, admitting they use cannabis. It, it's been the same thing with the, the scientific community. And that's really a shame because, you know, since it has all of these applications throughout the body, then you could uh, treat or cure a lot of uh, diseases or uh, ailments uh, by understanding the system and understanding how to tweak it. But to do that, we would have to start accepting uh, uh, cannabis as a legitimate form of medicine, because uh, to the best of our knowledge, uh, cannabis is the best way to 
um, modify or, or regulate or tweak the, the endocannabinoid system for a whole variety of purposes. And this is sort of what's at the heart of the matter when people are skeptical about uh, medical marijuana, because uh, there's the, the, the list of applications that it has is enormous. You know, people are skeptical when they hear like, oh, what, it gives you energy and puts you to sleep. How, how does that work? It, you know, it helps you focus and it, it can uh, have a negative impact on memory. Uh, and a lot of that comes from, you know, dosage and the variety of cannabinoids and terpenes in uh, the flower of cannabis. Uh, but it's also because our endocannabinoid system has such a huge, wide, wide ranging uh, application throughout the whole body. So, yes, if you want to uh, uh, tweak your uh, sleeping or your energy or your mood or your appetite uh, or, or whatever, yes, cannabis can have an application in that regard by tweaking the endocannabinoid system. Am I remembering correctly that there are more than 140 different types of cannabinoids? I mean, if so, I feel like we've barely scratched the surface of uh, everything that they may be able to do for us. Absolutely. I mean, we have such a, a myopic focus on THC. Uh, and, and recently, we've started exploring CBD more. Uh, I mean, research has been going on uh, about CBD since, uh, the I believe, the 80s, uh, the sort of godfather of cannabis medicine, uh, Raphael Mishulam, uh, discovered that it had uh, applications in, in treating Parkinson's uh, way back in the 90s, but that was ignored for, uh, I don't know, a good 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. And just now we're starting to understand like, oh, CBD has application for Parkinson's uh, and, and for uh, seizures as well, uh, which is something that uh, the ancient Persians uh, had written about in the 15th century. Um, but yeah, we're only just now discovering the, the wide range of applications of, of all the different cannabinoids uh, in, in marijuana. And it's something that I think is it, it's unfortunate that it's been so driven by capitalism, because mostly we just see that a lot of people want to get intoxicated uh, by cannabis and THC is the way to do that. So let's uh, regulate sales by the volume of THC. Let's uh, regulate the industry and, and how much they can sell and how much consumer can buy uh, based on THC and really just ignore all of these other cannabinoids, uh, which get uh, stripped out of uh, the cannabis in a lot of uh, the uh, 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 making of uh, edibles or any kind of concentrates, they'll really just take out the THC or THC and CBD and leave all the other cannabinoids uh, on the cutting room floor. Um, and yeah, we're, we're missing out quite a bit on that. But some an interesting development in the course of uh, writing and releasing Runner's High is that the industry seems to have caught up in uh, creating products appealing to people who are using cannabis for physical activity. Uh, and you're seeing uh, people uh, put more CBG into their uh, uh, edibles, uh, as well as THC and CBD, and, and, and then finding other uh, or organic uh, uh, compounds to uh, combine with that and, and make it uh, more of a, a pre-workout drink. Um, and it's, and, and same thing with uh, CBN when it comes to sleep. Uh, I've got some CBN sleep gummies uh, that are amazing and they, they knock me out and don't leave me feeling groggy the next morning. Um, it's, it's, 
exciting that there's such a frontier to explore when it comes to the variety of terpenes and cannabinoids, but it's also frustrating that it's taken us this long and that this uh, wonderful plant has sort of been marginalized into some kind of like party favor for you know, vacationing bros, uh, having some, you know, bachelor party in the city, <laughs> which is what, you know, I've seen the industry cater to living in Denver for the last 10 years. Yeah, no doubt about that. It really is infuriating to think about the demonization of cannabis, especially because it has really ruined the lives of so many people who maybe had a small amount for personal use and they end up getting labeled as criminals as a result, especially over the last 50 or so years since Nixon decided to make it a Schedule One drug. I mean, cannabis has served as a medicine going back to at least 2700 B.C. China. It was even utilized medically for the first 150 years in U.S. history. Why did this change so drastically in the early 1900s, Josiah? Well, things were shifting and prohibition was uh, going away and we needed, uh, well, the uh, Federal Bureau of Narcotics needed funding uh, to, you know, keep uh, the, the organization justified. Uh, and cocaine and heroin were mildly popular, uh, but uh, what was really taking hold in the 20s and 30s in America was uh, cannabis recreationally in, in jazz clubs and uh, with Mexican uh, laborers. And this guy, uh, Harry Anslinger, who was kind of the, the father of the war on drugs, uh, he tapped into a lot of those xenophobic, racist fears uh, that a lot of uh, mainstream white Americans had at that time. And really was the person who got the word marijuana, he spelled it with an H, marijuana, uh, popularized before that it was just known as cannabis. And he deliberately did that because it uh, had this like Mexican flavor to it and sounded exotic and scary to a lot of, uh, you know, pearl clutching uh, white mothers in America. And so it, they were able to uh, uh, criminalize it uh, pretty effectively by framing it as this new, crazy, wild drug that, you know, those dangerous black men and Mexicans are bringing from across the border to their jazz clubs. Uh, but really it had been, as you mentioned, uh, part of the U.S. pharmacopoeia for more than a century. Uh, most of the legislators who voted to criminalize it had no idea that uh, they'd most likely been served this uh, as medicine throughout their lives. But, uh, you know, a, a bottle of a tincture that says cannabis sativa is uh, pretty different from, you know, this uh, uh, headline grabbing uh mystery drug called marijuana. Oh, also, uh, um, the William Randolph Hearst uh, had quite a role to play in sort of uh, amplifying a lot of those racist sentiments from Harry Anslinger about the threat of uh, Black and Mexican men uh, and their jazz music and their devil's lettuce. Uh, so a lot of this uh, just kind of came from opportunistic racist men looking to you know, gin up tax dollars by scaring mothers. Uh, and it's unfortunate that a lot of that same rhetoric uh, is with us today. You know, the, the idea that it's a, a gateway drug uh, or that it saps you of your ambition uh, or, you know, uh, that, that you'll have this amotivational syndrome. Uh, a lot of that extended from uh, racist propaganda, anti-communist 
propaganda. It, it really wasn't based in science. Uh, and it's unfortunate that we've lost uh, an entire century of potential research that we could be doing on this plant uh, just because these, uh, you know, really terrible people uh, were, you know, looking after their own careers. That's right. It was the William Randolph Hearst newspapers who loved to push the idea that marijuana caused dark-skinned men to want to rape white women. Now, I've always heard that part of the reason why he did that is because he had a big financial backing in the timber industry, and he was concerned at the strength and durability of the cannabis plant and just uh, some of the similar things that it could do in regards to uh, a competition with the timber industry. So that's one of the reasons why he wanted to snuff it out. Have you heard something similar along those lines? I have heard that over the years, uh, and I've, I've heard people uh, argue with that. Um, I think it's similar to how I feel about the role that the pharmaceutical industry had in the anti or the alcohol industry had in the sort of anti-marijuana propaganda uh, that's been going on really since those uh, reefer madness days. And it's really just um, incentives. You know, I, I don't know if you could point to any sort of grand unified conspiracy that's going to keep uh, all of these uh, people or all these corporations in government collaborating to keep cannabis illegal. Um, but I think if you have incentives, um, yeah, uh, Hearst may have been uh, uh, pushed in that direction for financial incentives, but he also, you know, was a pretty racist guy who liked to sell newspapers and the mm -hmm. idea of this like, you know, strange exotic drug that these, you know, big black men in jazz clubs are taking and it's making them super strong and it's making them, you know, want to rape white women. That's something that's going to grab people's attention at that time. Uh, you know, so just like Harry Anslinger was tapping into those racist fears for his own agenda, uh, William Randolph Hearst was as well. Uh, and I don't doubt that, uh, the industrialization of hemp would have had a big impact on his bottom line. And maybe he did know that uh, maybe it did influence him, but I think he had a, a number of uh, other factors uh, pushing him. And th there's this great line I, I came across recently from Gore Vidal, where he said, uh, you know, talking about um, uh, this empirical mindset with the U S government or corporations, he says, uh, they don't have to uh, collaborate. It, it doesn't have to be a conspiracy because they all think alike. <laughs> they all want the exact same thing and see the world in the exact same way. So they don't need to call up one another and say, you do this and I'll do that. They just all head in that same direction. And it looks like a conspiracy, but really it's just a, you know, sociopathic capitalists. Very well said. All right, you just touched on this, so I'm going to need you to expand on it now. Why is the Partnership for a Drug-Free America not necessarily the neutral nonprofit just trying to do the right thing that me and plenty of others have thought it was over the last 20 to 30 years? Well, I think there's a variety of reasons. I mean, the content that they produced, uh, for starters, I think, uh, didn't educate young people on drugs, didn't give them any sort of context about what is happening in their bodies, uh, maybe how to responsibly use drugs or, or what's different about different drugs or, or why dosages are so important and not combining drugs with other drugs. Uh, you know, that would have been much more helpful instead of just, uh, you know, making 
taking that like cartoon all stars to the rescue movie uh, and getting all of you know the 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 Muppets and the Ninja Turtles together to say drugs are bad, uh, you know. And there was also a lot of sort of low key racism that uh, was present in a lot of those ads. Uh, they furthered that idea that cannabis makes you lazy and that uh, people who use cannabis are unattractive, unambitious, unaccomplished, uh, basically, you know, making anyone who uses cannabis feel like shit about themselves, uh, as well as uh, kids in relationship to their parents, because uh, my dad was using cannabis at that time. And and the the Partnership for Drug Free America really uh, propagandized me into believing that he was a terrible person uh, for doing that. And, but also, they were taking a whole lot of money from the U.S. government and from uh, getting a lot of free advertising from various media operations um, to, you know, really paint cannabis as this uh, life destroying substance when, you know, the people they were taking money from uh, both the U.S. government and the pharmaceutical industry, uh, as well as uh, alcohol and tobacco companies all had an incentive uh, to keep this substance demonized. Uh, And nowhere else in the marketplace would you see a business being allowed to demonize uh, another, a a competing product on television and in newspaper ads uh, so relentlessly and get so much funding and uh, free ad space to do it. Uh, and to say that this uh, competing product is uh, going to kill you, going to ruin your life, uh, it, and it has ruined the lives of anyone else, will turn you into a criminal, will make you uh, spend the rest of your life in prison. You know, these were really uh, harmful messages uh, that were put out to people that you could never do if you were. Pepsi, you couldn't say that uh, Coke is going to ruin your life, uh, that you're going to be a loser in prison without a job or a family or a home. If you drink Coke, uh, they, they would be sued for that. You know, they'd be liable for that. But no, there was no cannabis industry throughout the 80s and 90s for them to say like, oh, that's uh, scientifically incorrect or there, there's no basis for that. Like this, this product doesn't do that. Uh, where, where are you getting this? There was no pushback. Uh, these from these operations about the claims that they were making. Uh, And it was the same thing with D.A.R.E. Uh, It was the same thing with a lot of these uh, organizations. Very little of it was driven by, you know, concerned citizens. Uh, Concerned citizens were caught up in it, but they certainly weren't directing any of it, uh, funding or fueling any of it. Uh, It was really just these uh, various corporations that had incentives to keep cannabis illegal. And they really had no qualms about the destruction uh, laid in their path uh, toward that. Well, I now feel less bad about ironically wearing that dare shirt 25 years ago in college (laughs) while I was stoned out of my gourd then, I guess. Uh, Yeah. Even though the demonization of cannabis really extended from the early 1900s all the way up to modern times, although the tide is beginning to turn, scientists did start looking into its medicinal properties once again in the middle part of the last century. How did a Bulgarian Holocaust survivor make an enormous impact on the science of cannabis? 
Yeah, this guy, Raphael Meshulam, was uh, just endlessly fascinating to me because, I mean, you could just uh, tell the story of him being a Holocaust survivor. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like an epic spy thriller unto itself. But he landed in Israel from Bulgaria when he was in his 20s uh, and was studying to be a chemist and was uh, making insecticides for the U.S. or for the Israeli army. And he wanted to get into something kind of new and uh, revelatory. And he was a big history nerd. Uh, and spoke several languages. Uh, so he read all of these old medical texts uh, from China, from Russia and India, uh, throughout Europe, and kept coming across this plant cannabis. Uh, and he was very curious as to why uh, it wasn't being researched today and actually applied for a grant for a grant from the National Institute of Health in America. And this was in 62. And they uh, rejected him at first. They were like, nobody uses marijuana. Like, why would you want to study that? And, you know, this was this was early 60s, this was before the Beatles and Bob Dylan and the Cultural Revolution. Uh, but there was a U.S. senator whose son was caught smoking marijuana, and he reached out to NIH, and he's like, what do we know about this thing? And they're like, we don't know anything, but this guy in Israel wants to study it. And so they gave him the grant he just goes to the police station uh, in Jerusalem and asks them for a pound of hash and they give it to him and he <laughs> rode the bus home. And uh, it, over the next few decades did some very revolutionary work in studying cannabis, discovered all these cannabinoids and mapped them and uh, figured out how they interact in the human body. Uh, it was basically this like giant body of uh, uh, revelatory work over a series of decades that you could kind of compare to that uh, stretch of time where Albert Einstein had all these uh, big revelations and I, I don't know, is it calculus or engineering? Or, it had a big impact on engineering and so much of what we have today came from uh, this stretch of time where he was doing all these uh, uh, all this research. And so it's interesting to think about in the US how difficult it is uh, for anyone researching cannabis. It's gotten better, but to get their hands on the type of cannabis that people are using uh, you know, most, for the most part, they've all been uh, relegated to this very low quality uh, cannabis. The DEA allows to be grown at the University of Mississippi and it's like freeze dried. It's something like 6% THC, whereas most of the stuff you buy in a dispensary is going to be 18 to 22% THC. Uh, they can't do anything with CBD. And these researchers who get this stuff are, are, are just like, well, this isn't what people are using. So this research that we're doing on the substance is irrelevant to uh, what the public are doing. So our data isn't really all of that, all that potent. Um, and with Raphael Mishulam, he just, he went and uh, bought this Moroccan hash for, or not bought it, uh, was given it. So he was, he had access to what people were actually using. And we could have, you know, if he had been, denied that grant, uh, you know, if there wasn't that follow-up, or if he lived in the U.S., uh, all these different factors, and he wouldn't have been able to do this research. And then uh, I certainly wouldn't be sitting here today talking to you about the endocannabinoid system and all these cannabinoids uh, in the body and, and knowing uh, about all this research, because he also unearthed a whole lot of historical research uh, surrounding cannabis uh, that had uh, been buried because of that time, you have to remember in the in the 80s during uh, the Reagan administration, at least in the States, uh, he had the National Institute of Drug Abuse uh, uh, scrape uh, any uh, research showing uh, cannabis in a positive light and, and not approve any uh, new studies uh, aiming to show cannabis either in a positive or neutral light. Uh, it, it had to be framed 
with you know, like I, I talked to a lot of cannabis researchers who said uh, in the states like if they wanted to show that cannabis was helpful for say like AIDS patients they had to frame the study uh, when applying uh, to the DEA to get cannabis they had to frame it as like well we want to show how cannabis uh, potentially has a negative impact on AIDS patients and, and then NIDA will be like okay we'll fund that research and then they're like whoops so oh, actually it shows that it has positive uh, applications for AIDS patients. Who could have foreseen that? Uh, and then the you know the study will move forward. But that's the sort of pageantry that uh, U.S. researchers have to go through, uh, and it's just it's so wonderful that uh, Rafael Mishulam was allowed to go forward with uh, his research. And in Israel, to this day, uh, I believe they're on the road to uh, full legalization. They're and they're doing all sorts of uh, fascinating research uh, over there. And there's a, an industry that's coming up. Uh, I think that's going to be one of the sort of cannabis science uh, uh, headquarters uh, of the globe in the, the years ahead. Um, and rightfully so, because of Mashulam and the work that he did in the 60s uh, through the 90s. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, some of the most profound research on CBD and its ability to help athletes recover from concussions is coming out of Israel right now, too. That's right. Yeah, it's uh, shown to be a neuroprotectant um, that protects brain cells from injury, uh, both from impact uh, say in sports, but also, ironically, uh, from alcohol abuse. Uh, I don't know if I'm uh, citing the same study that, that you are, but I, I, I came across this a couple of years ago that um, cannabis can actually help protect the brain from damage from uh, alcohol abuse, hmm. uh, which is uh, kind of a, a, a fun, ironic twist. Uh, and the story of cannabis legalization. Chapter 5 is titled, Is Cannabis a Performance-Enhancing Drug? WADA says that cannabis is a performance-enhancing drug in part because of a study that found that marijuana, quote, can cause muscle relaxation and reduce and or decrease anxiety and tension pain during post-workout recovery and increase focus and risk-taking behaviors, allowing athletes to forget bad falls or previous trauma in sports and push themselves past those fears in competition. Josiah, why is any of that a bad thing? Well, that was uh, precisely my response when I read that same study. Uh, you know, is, it, uh, is this against uh, the, the spirit of sports to not have anxiety and to push yourself, uh, you know, or to not be afraid, to not be miserable, to not be in pain? Is that what we're after with sports uh, in competition? I don't know. I didn't have a background in sports journalism when I went into this project. Um, I, I feel like I'd covered nearly every other subject uh, from the arts to science, uh, religion, history, sexuality, politics, crime, uh, cannabis, obviously. Um, and, but I'd never touched sports. And so I didn't, didn't quite fully grasp the, the idea behind competition uh, going into this and was looking to WADA to give me some uh, enlightenment on why what role cannabis plays, what negative role cannabis potentially plays uh, behind competition. And yes, they talk about um, the performance enhancing aspects of cannabis. Uh, and they also, you know, vaguely mention its uh, health detriments. But the third uh, criteria that they have is um, uh, for banning a substance is that it violates the spirit of the sport. And, and that's a very you know, strange enigmatic term because there's not really any clear metric 
for how you would measure something like that. And they admit as much in their writing, but the one tangible uh, 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 piece of information they do provide is, is uh, saying uh, athletes are role models for children and we should um, uh, uh, not be encouraging children to use marijuana, which I guess is what uh, uh, athletes would be doing if they admitted they use cannabis. I mean, it's not problematic for alcohol uh, or opioids <laughs> for some reason. I guess those don't violate the spirit of the sport, but cannabis does. So a lot of it is sort of those old tropes about um, uh, the, the types of people who use cannabis and, uh, you know, that those aren't good people. It's like that Jeff Sessions line, good people do not use marijuana. Uh, that is very much where WADA is at right now. Uh, and I think when people ask me, is it a performance enhancing drug? I mean, I always say yes, just not in the way that people think about that, because uh, there's a sports medicine educator that I spoke with in the book who talks about, uh, you know, icing an ankle uh, is, is not going to take that ankle beyond its natural limits, uh, like say steroids would. Steroids will make your muscles bigger, make your heart stronger uh, beyond what you're genetically capable of achieving through uh, any vigorous training. Uh, but cannabis doesn't do that. Cannabis, like icing an injury, will return it to a state of balance. You know, will reduce your anxiety, increase your focus. Uh, it's going to have all of these positive attributes, but nothing that isn't uh, already permitted in a variety of other avenues in uh, uh, professional sports. You know, we allow uh, sleep aids, we allow benzodiazepines, we allow uh, anti-inflammatories like Tylenol and aspirin and ibuprofen, which do have negative health impacts. Uh, you know, they'll dehydrate you, they'll uh, uh, mess up your organs. Uh, there's a lot to be concerned about with there. Um, but we, th th there's not really any clear metric on uh, why cannabis is banned in sports. There's a lot of like vague splintering reasoning given here and there, and some of it's contradictory. But WANA did announce, uh, I think the week after my book came out, that they're going to be changing their policies on cannabis. Uh, they just haven't announced uh, what that'll look like. And they've done a few of these changes before. I believe it was uh, 2017 that they uh, allowed CBD. They removed CBD from uh, the banned substances list. And a few years before that, they raised the amount of acceptable levels of THC that can be found in an athlete system without uh, receiving any kind of penalty. So that essentially allowed athletes to use cannabis uh, in their training, uh, just not in competition. Uh, so I assume with this uh, forthcoming announcement from WADA, it'll be something along those lines. It won't be, I, and this is just my uh, theorizing, I don't think it'll be any sort of dramatic, you know, we're taking it off the table kind of announcement, uh, although that does seem to be the case uh, in the uh, MLB and NBA, uh, they have announced they're at least uh, not going to uh, be doing any sort of testing for cannabis uh, at this time. Uh, the MLB was very concerned about athletes uh, being in, uh, sponsored by cannabis companies and, and kept that prohibition in place. And so did the NCAA, uh, and we all know how much they care about their uh, 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 athletes getting any sort of uh, reciprocation uh, for their efforts. Um, so a lot of this, uh, it, it's, it's not wrapped up in science. It's wrapped up in, in money and the culture wars and uh, just a lot of hangovers from the war on drugs.
Yeah, even the NFL has come around on that. My prediction with WADA is that they're going to come out in a couple of weeks and say athletes can use THC if they have full-blown AIDS. That's the, uh, <laughs> that's the exception there. Is there a point, Josiah, where running under the influence of cannabis becomes problematic to the user? I'll say yes, uh, but I think that's something that's a case-by-case basis, uh, and there isn't any clear metric for that. Like, there is, say, uh, most people have a similar baseline for alcohol or opioids, uh, uh, and you can't build a tolerance to that. Uh, Cannabis doesn't always look like that. Uh, I've kept really the same dose for myself uh, for about 10 years. Uh, I take 10 to 20 milligrams of THC before I go out on a run. Uh, But for me personally, when I exceed that, it can have a negative impact on me. Uh, With cannabis, there's, um, uh, it has what's known as a biphasic effect. So if you think of like a bell curve uh, with uh, two uh, opposing ends, on the one end, you've got euphoria and focus and coordination and balance and energy. And then on the other end, you've got you know, lack of coordination and uh, lethargy and paranoia, anxiety, um, that's all based on dosage. Uh, you know, there's a window of a, a small dosage that can give an athlete all sorts of advantages. Um, but after a certain point, those, uh, the exact opposite can set in. And that's different from person to person. Like I said, I take 10 to 20 uh, milligrams of THC, but I know uh, a person I wrote about in the book um, took, uh, I believe it was 150 milligrams of THC and swam from San Francisco to Alcatraz. Hmm. Uh, You know, and if I took 150 milligrams, uh, I'd either, you know, be uh, screaming down the street (laughs) or, you know, completely passed out uh, at home. Uh, I I would never never dare take that much, but it's different for everyone. Everyone's endocannabinoid system is different. So I would never say like, you know, it's this level, this threshold is, uh, you know, in relation to some specific metric of of THC is, is where people should go. But I definitely recommend when people are new to this, that they uh, start, there's this phrase in Colorado, start low and go slow uh, when it comes to edibles, which I think is fantastic. Take a small dose, you know, uh, I would recommend like, two to five milligrams of THC. And if you haven't exercised in a while, don't combine it. Or even if you haven't, don't combine it with exercise the first time. Do it a couple of times at home where you feel comfortable, where you don't have any responsibilities. And then when you do do it out in the world, do it in familiar places. You know, I went out trail running for the first time uh, and got really high and ran like 10 miles and had a blast. But then I was like, I haven't been paying attention to any of those signs. I have no idea where I'm at. I don't know where my friends are. I didn't bring enough water, you know? So that's, those are the kind of things that like, it's not a a supremely dangerous situation, but uh, you know, it, it, it does take you into a different headspace where maybe you're not as locked into um, necessary details Uh, which is fine. You know, for me, I like to run in Denver parks and uh, there's, I'm not going to get lost there. Uh, Nothing's going to surprise me there. It's just a a big loop on the perimeter of the park. So I can get as weird and, you know, mentally uh, lost as I want, you know, in the music that I'm listening to and the experience that I'm having, because I don't have any responsibilities. Nothing's going to surprise me. If I'm running along, uh, you know, a cliff, uh, with a big drop off and have been running for like hours and hours and, you know, haven't taken enough water or food. Like that's the kind of thing where 
too much cannabis can it can be a detriment uh, to you um, and your ability to like lock into all the the necessary details uh, of survival or even to do the job itself. You know, I also uh, uh, played soccer for the first time uh, under the influence. Someone invited me to their soccer game and I thought like, well, I've been running high for years now. Why don't we try soccer? And I'd never played it before, didn't know the rules. And these were like serious soccer people. Oh. They really didn't appreciate this uh, uh, strange hippie who was kicking the ball <laughs> the wrong direction uh, and just confused to hell uh, as to what was going on. And, and that's what taught me the lesson. Don't try new things stoned, you know, uh, like especially anything where you have to learn uh, the new set of rules or, or something, you know, if it's, if it's a sport you've been playing forever, uh, a little bit of cannabis, I don't think it's gonna, uh, mess you up that much, but like, uh, don't try new things stone is, uh, sort of my mantra to people that are new to this, that's, uh, that's a and good, take small doses. Yeah. Those are good rules for sure. I want, all right. I wanted to end today's conversation with a couple of general cannabis questions because you do cover cannabis news for a living. First of all, how legit are strains of cannabis like indica and sativa? If I smoke indica, am I going to end up in the couch? And if I smoke sativa, is it going to give me more of that energetic high? Okay, so those, uh, it's a great question because uh, those are botanical terms, indica and sativa, but we, they've sort of become marketing terms in that they don't always have that same uh, botanical application. But in terms of the effect, uh, it is still safe uh, for you to go to a dispensary and ask for an indica if you do want something sleepy, uh, something for pain, uh, something to help you relax, and a sativa uh, on the other end. Um, it, it would drive botanists crazy to be calling these plants that, but you know it'll still get the job done in terms of getting you connected with the right product. And it's a similar story with strains as well. Uh, there's this guy, Ethan Russo, who's uh, one of the, you know, sort of big wig cannabis scientists uh, who points out like, uh, you know, plants don't even have strains. Uh, you know, they're, there's, it's, it's not an appropriate term uh, to give plants. And these uh, names that we have are kind of arbitrary. You know, if I want to buy golden goat in Denver, uh, and then I go and buy a golden goat in LA, it's not necessarily going to be the same collection of terpenes and cannabinoids. Uh, there, there isn't any consistency from store to store or from state to state when it comes to these strains. And so what I recommend to people, at least in legalized states, is to talk to the uh, bud tender about what your desired effect is uh, for this cannabis. Or are you using it when you're going on a hike or using it you know, as, as you're uh, nursing an ankle injury and you're just going to be on the couch uh, for the next week, you know, those are two very different uh, um, products. Uh, and I'd say like maybe 50% of bud tenders know what they're talking about. Uh, mm -hmm. Most of the time they're glorified cashiers. Um, but, you know, <laughs> you do get people uh, in dispensaries that are passionate about uh, the plant and are excited to talk to you about all the nuance of it. And, and if you, the more honest you are with them about the reason you're using this cannabis, the, the more they can help connect you with uh, what's right for you. When in doubt, look for the guy or gal with the Grateful Dead shirt on. All right, last question, Josiah. 
Uh, I'm here in Texas. I have no faith that the state government is going to ever uh, legalize recreational use. But federally speaking, how far off do you think it is before the U.S. government decides to legalize recreational use nationally? It's hard to say. Um, I imagine when it comes, it's going to be sort of like gay marriage. Uh, that gay marriage ruling did sort of come out of nowhere. Uh, I mean, it, it, at least in when you think of the seismic shift it, it caused in America's relationship with gay marriage, I think there'll be a, a federal uh, uh, you know, removal of cannabis from the Controlled Substances Act, which was what Nixon did in 71. And I think that's uh, uh, the method that a lot of these Democratic legislators are trying to take. And as soon as that does happen, it's going to be an, a, a profound game changer for the industry when it comes to access to banking and uh, tax deductions. Um, it's, it's just going to uh, completely change the game economically, which hopefully will allow uh, lower uh, um, lower income people uh, some kind of way into uh, the, the industry. Because uh, right now it's it's really just uh, millionaires and billionaires that can afford to get into it. So I couldn't say when that's going to happen. Uh, it could be in the next year, or it could be in the next five or ten years. It's it's just so hard to say. Uh, but I do know if you look at uh, the last few elections, um, I think it was. In 2020, uh, six states uh, either went full recreational or medical, uh, but in 2016, it was eight states uh, that changed their cannabis laws. And so I think whatever uh, form it takes, it's coming. Uh, And we just kind of have to sit back and, and wait and see what that looks like. Josiah Hesse is an investigative journalist who covers cannabis in relation to athletics, politics, economics, and culture. He's also the author of the excellent new book, Runner's High, How a Movement of Cannabis-Fueled Athletes is Changing the Science of Sports. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Josiah, thank you for the time today, and thank you for this very important book. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's been a blast chatting with you.